day Edom. And Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to a son of his brother in the land of Seir, to the field of Edom. It says here that Jacob sent Malachim, he sent messengers ahead of him to meet his brother Esav. Now, how are we supposed to understand who these messengers are? It's interesting because there are two ways to read this understanding of Malachim. Now, remember, when the text was actually written, when the Torah and all of Scripture was written, there were no chapter and verse breaks, right? So even though there's kind of the beginning of a, a different part of the story here, and so the rabbis begin the verse here, the chapter actually begins in, in verse 1, right? The portion begins in, in 4. And how does the last Torah portion end? With angels, right? That Jacob encounters these angels of God. And because he encounters these angels, he calls the place where they camped Machanaim, not just one camp, Machanei, but Machanaim, two camps, because there was a heavenly camp encamped with, within the physical camp. And then the next verse says that he sent Malachim out to greet his brother Esav. In Hebrew, there isn't a different word for messengers or angels, because angels are messengers. So when it says Malachim, we don't know exactly whether he's talking about were these earthly messengers or were these angels? And the rabbis say that even though maybe he sent actual servants with a message to Yaakov, the angels accompanied him. Because it makes sense that the angels in the previous verse are the same angels in the next verse. In ancient times, there was, as I mentioned, there were no chapter and verse breaks within the text. There are actually three total encounters mentioning angels in reference to Jacob. The first was at the beginning of last week's Torah portion, where we read about Jacob's vision of a ladder with angels ascending and descending upon it. That was a changing of the guard, where Yaakov was given the ability to see a new host of heaven descending to meet him for the next stage of his journey, to prepare and protect him during the trials he would face under his uncle Levan. The second mention of angels is the one that I just mentioned at the end of last week's Torah portion, where after leaving Levan and returning to Canaan, Jacob is met by angels, leading him to call that location of his angelic encounter, Machanaim, two camps. Then the third mention of angels in relation to Jacob is the one here, the sending out of the previous angels to encounter Esav with a message of reconciliation and peace. All of these angelic encounters are moments of preparation for Jacob. At each stage of his journey, Jacob must learn to trust God and must learn how to forgive and be confident in his identity as a God wrestler. Each angelic encounter, encounter serves as a bookend for each stage of Jacob's spiritual journey. It also serves as a literary device, serving as a transition to set up the next stage of his life. These moments in his spiritual transformation are what enable him to truly become a great patriarch of the Jewish, of the Jewish people. But he didn't start that way. It's important to remember, 
Jacob didn't necessarily start out with a close encounter with God. It takes time. God had to prepare him for what was about to happen. And as Jacob is about to meet his brother Esav, in verse 8 we read, Vayira Yaakov me'od And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps. And he said, if Esav comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp which is left shall escape. We read here about the distress of Jacob and his fear. And I think it's one of the most, one of the most honest moments that we encounter with Jacob in his fear as he's left alone. He sent everyone on ahead of him. Was this gutless or was it magnanimous? In the sense of, did he send everybody else hoping that he would save his own skin? Or did he really sense that this was a process in which God was working something out? The other thing we see here is the con he's confronted with this fractured relationship. When he left Canaan to go find his uncle Levan, he was fleeing for his life. Because if you remember, his brother Esav wanted to kill him. And so he flees. And so now he's about to encounter his brother again who is approaching him with 400 fighting men. I would be very afraid as well. Because he doesn't know if that same hatred is still there within Esav. And truly what his, the intentions of his brother are because it's now been decades since he's last seen him. And we read in verse 23, And he rose up that night, and Jacob took his two wives and his two handmaids and his eleven children and passed over the ford of the Yabok. And he took them and sent them over the stream and sent over that which he had. It says here, And Jacob crossed over the Yabok River. In ancient Near Eastern thought, the crossing of a river was a symbol of new beginnings and a start and a new start. It was a sort of rebirth. This theme of crossing over is, repeated, is a repeated theme throughout the biblical text, right? Whenever we have a new beginning, we have a crossing of a river. We had that with really sort of the beginnings of the people of Israel, the crossing of, of the Sea of Reeds, which even though it wasn't the beginning of the people per se, but it was really the beginning of their coming into the fruition of who they're supposed to be. We see here of Jacob coming into his own identity, the crossing of the Yabok. When Joshua and the children of Israel are about to enter a land, what do they do? They cross a river. Even Yeshua himself, when he's about to begin a new part of his life, where for 33 years he was in preparation, and as he enters that sort of last phase, he's entered into a river and crosses to the other side with the help of John. There are also many word plays that are going on in this text with the word yabok, the river, and the word ever, where we get Hebrew from, right? 
over and over again talks about, even in just the, the few words that I read, it said, Vaya'avor et me'aver yabok. There is a purposeful connection with the name of the river, which is yabok, or jabek in, in English, the yabok river, and the word vaye'avek, which means to wrestle or to struggle. It is here at this river of new beginning in Jacob's life that he also received a new name and a new identity as Israel. In verse 25, we read, Vayivatel Yaakov levado, v'yeavek ish imo ad alota shacha. And Jacob was left alone, and there a man wrestled with him until daybreak. In the middle of the night, left alone and afraid, a mysterious being comes and wrestles with him, at which time this mysterious figure blesses Jacob and gives him the name Israel, Yisrael, which means to wrestle, to struggle with God. The question we ask ourselves is, who is this mysterious figure? It doesn't say an angel wrestled with him. It says he's left alone and an ish, a man, wrestles with him. But we quickly realize this is more than just a man. Although Rashi and other sages identify this mysterious figure as the angel of Esav, there is also an understanding of this figure being more than just an angel. A few weeks ago, in talking about Genesis 18, we encountered the concept of a theophany, right? The word theophany comes from the ancient, from the ancient Greek, theophania, meaning the appearance of God, and refers to the appearance of a deity to a human. However, in regard to biblical theology, the term theophany has acquired a specific usage for both Christians and Jews, referring to a physical manifestation of God to people, right? Whenever God takes on a physical form in his interaction with humanity, it's called a theophany. Examples of theophanies are God's interaction and communication with Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 18, which we discussed a couple weeks ago, of the three visitors who, in, who visit Abraham while he is sitting in his tent in Mamre. And two of them are angels who in the next chapter go on to Sodom and Gomorrah. One of them he has a whole conversation with. And the whole time he's using the name of God, the yud heh vav -Hey, the Tetragrammaton, Adonai. He's speaking to God one-on-one, -on -one, and God is saying, why should I, and also God's voice is in the, in the here and now, in the present tense, why should I hide from you, Abraham, what I'm about to do? We also have an understanding that what happened at Sinai was a theophany, and also some of the descriptions in Isaiah and Ezekiel. And in rabbinic thought, we even see that the Mishkan itself is supposed to be an embodiment of God to the people. So let's look more specifically at our theophany here in Vaishlach. Jacob is left alone, and a man comes and wrestles with him. Although, as I mentioned, the popular view is this is an angel, given the previous angelic encounters. However, the, however, the text never says it was an angel, which is part of the mystery. in my view and that of many scholars, is that this sets up an even greater divine encounter. 
Jacob struggles with God and with man, it says, and his name is changed to Israel. The definition of Yisrael is to wrestle, to struggle with God. Although you can argue that this may just be figurative, there are two more hints that Jacob actually wrestles with God in a physical form. Yaakov asks the being its name, and the response is interesting. This figure says, why are you asking about my name, right? This name that nobody knows. <laughs> Alone, it doesn't mean much. However, when one understands the sacred name of God is often referred to as the name that no one knows, and the reverence given to the name of God in Jewish understanding, then the reference should be a little more obvious. The last clue that this is more than just an angel is in the name Yaakov gives to the place afterwards and his reason for doing so. Jacob calls the place Peni El, the face of God. And he says, because I have seen God face to face, yet my life was spared. The idea of God taking on a physical form is not unheard of in the Torah or in ancient Jewish understanding. Within this sort of incarnation is an obvious messianic connection. It is not ridiculous to understand this mysterious encounter as a physical and spiritual struggle between Jacob and Hashem. Jacob assumed that God had abandoned him. And it turns out God was part of the struggle. This encounter reshaped his identity and the future of the Jewish people. This struggle foreshadows the life of the Jewish people and also prefigures and points to the ultimate incarnation in Yeshua himself. This divine encounter was not only part of the spiritual experience and transformation of Jacob himself, but also returns us back to the larger narrative. God was preparing Jacob for what would happen next. So how did his encounter with Esav work out? Well, it says in chapter 33, And Esav ran to meet him, and he embraced him. And he fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept together. Within this moment, we see a transformation of two brothers. Esav, who last wanted to kill Jacob, now displays love and forgiveness and initially refuses all of Jacob's gifts. We also see at this moment the maturity and humility of Jacob. Throughout this Parsha, we see the transformation of Jacob into Israel, from a man running away and afraid into a patriarch of the Jewish people. Our Torah portion, Vayishlach, teaches us about moments of preparation. At each stage of our journey, if we are faithful to Hashem, God will meet us in these moments of transition, empower us, and send his angels to accompany us on our way. Do you feel yourself in the midst of transition and turmoil? Do you feel like God is leading you out of your current place of comfort into a new and uncharted territory? I know I do. When Jacob first heard his brother was coming, he experienced tremendous fear. He was preparing for the worst. 
But what he could not see was God working behind the scenes to turn this moment into good. And so often it is with us. We spend so much time preparing for the worst that we do not see God working behind the scenes to turn our circumstances into blessing. In Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. We need, our, we need to change our perspective. I'm not saying that trust in God means everything is always good. Instead, it somehow works out for good. Because you might be like Jacob, and even though you encounter God, you still walk away limping. But that doesn't mean you didn't encounter God. Because what you don't see and what you don't realize is even when you're hurt and you're struggling and you're walking away limping, you're leaving with a blessing. You just don't see it. I think Jacob, when he was walking away, kind of wished he didn't have the limp. <laughs> but in the end, he realizes that it is a sign of an encounter of something that radically changed him and which change his descendants forever. If you find yourself wrestling with God, I want to encourage you to keep wrestling. There's a reason why Israel, the Jewish people, are called Yisrael, the God wrestlers. I know often, for my friends from Christian backgrounds, you're often taught never to question or never to wrestle. But from a Jewish perspective, our whole identity is in wrestling with God, which is not blasphemy. You think about it over and over and over again. Figures in the Bible, God says, this is what's going to happen. And they say, oh yeah? <laughs> Can we make a deal, right? Abraham, right? Would you really destroy this city? What if I found 50 righteous people? What about 40 righteous people? Over and over and over again you see this idea of wrestling with God. What they're doing is they're not blaspheming God. What they're doing is it's a real relationship. We throw around this term all the time. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship, which, by the way, I agree. Don't throw rocks yet. <laughs> but my point is, if it really is a relationship, then it's a relationship. I'm smart enough to know not to just tell my wife whatever we're going to do. We're going here, right? Instead, you all know how this works. A happy wife is a happy life, right? So you negotiate, right? <laughs> I'm kind of feeling like steak. Well, I'm feeling like a, a salad. By the way, I'm the one who wants the salad. <laughs> and so we negotiate and we find a place, right? The same that it is with God. There might be times when God clearly has a direction, and there are times in our relationship that we put our foot down. But there's also, in fact, most of the time when we're open to some feedback. And I don't think this was that, for example, Abraham or Moses really changed God's mind. In fact, I think it was more of a test for them. Like when God tells Moses, you know what, stand back, Moses, I'm going to destroy this people. And from you, I will make a new people. And what does Moses say? You cannot do that, God. You can't do that. And it's funny because what does he say? Because you're going to look bad, right? <laughs> it's, 
your reputation among all the other nations are going to say, ah, you know, who is this God? You can't trust him. And you know, what, you know what God does? You're right, Moses. I think it was a test of Moses. If you really are this leader, this great leader of the Jewish people, are you really going to throw your people under the bus? Even though they've stabbed you in the back, they've spoke against you, there's been an uprising. I would have said, you know what? Take them. <laughs> I'm just being honest. You know what? But you know what? If you do that, who's to say that the next people that he makes from you are not going to be just as stiff-necked and stubborn? And... Because it's a reflection of ourselves. We always like to point the finger at everybody else. Look at that person. Instead of realizing, often we're our own worst enemies. This morning, I want to encourage us to wrestle with God. To just like Jacob, to not just give in, and there's no way I can overpower you. But even in the sense of the overpowering, say, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will fight all night if that's what it takes. I will wrestle all the next day if that's what it takes. No matter what happens, I will keep fighting until I receive and receive that blessing. That's what God wants to do for you and us this morning. I don't know what it is that you're wrestling with God about. And if you say you're not, you're lying. Because nobody's perfect and everybody's wrestling with something. Yours might be buried so deep you don't even see it. But we're all wrestling. And it's time to not give up until God blesses us. We might walk away limping, but I'll tell you it's, it's better to live than have been struck down. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King. I pray that if there's any lesson that we learned from Jacob, it would be this one right here. To keep wrestling and not to give up until we, until we receive the blessing. I love the parable of Yeshua, where he says, the person who pounds on the door asking for a loaf of bread, and over and over and over again. And Yeshua says, the man doesn't get down because he has compassion. He gets down to shut the guy up. <laughs> We're supposed to keep wrestling, to not give up. God, I pray that we would have the strength to do that. And more than the strength, I pray that we would have the faith. That in the midst of our struggle, that we would recognize the face of God in the midst of the struggle. Help us, O oh Father. Give us strength and encouragement. Let us not let go until you bless us. Work on us, God. Work in those deep places. Especially those places that we'd rather hold on to or not let you in. But letting go is part of the healing. 
Bless us, our Father, all of us as one, with the light of your countenance. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Please rise for the words of the Elenu.